in the dim confines of Frontera State Prison, a story would unfold that transcends the barriers of prison bars. A story that reaches into the heart of a system meant to rehabilitate, but often marred by events that shake the public's faith. Join us for this episode of Still Unsolved as we delve into the labyrinthine corridors of this high-security facility, peeling back the layers of deception, betrayal, and cover-ups that surround a young woman's murder. In this intricate narrative, truth and falsehood blur, leaving us to confront the unsettling realities that exist within the heart of the criminal justice system. This is the story of Terry Lucas. The story of Terry Yvonne Lucas took place at Frontera Prison in California. Currently known as the California Institution for Women, the penitentiary is one of the largest women's prisons in the United States. Some of California's most violently dangerous women can be found in its maximum security wing. However, the criminal activity in Frontera extends far beyond the inmates. Allegedly, the prison guards and other employees have established their own drug trafficking ring right in the heart of the facility. But where does Terry Lucas come into this story? Terry Lucas worked as a housekeeper before being sent to prison due to a parole violation. In the fall of 1987, she needed to be transferred to Frontera Prison to be treated for a breast tumor. Terry was found dead in the infirmary just a few months later. The prison officials treated her death very callously. According to other inmates, her body was left untouched for days before anything was done. Prison guard Betty Thompson came forward with her recollection of an encounter she had with Terry shortly before her death. Terry had developed a reputation among the guards as being very tough and intimidating. However, there was a prison guard that terrified her and made her change her demeanor entirely. There was one day when that prison guard was determined to get into Terry's cell for unknown reasons. Betty Thompson saw how much this upset Terry and confronted the guard until he walked away. Thompson would then enter Terry's cell to comfort her. It was at that time that she was told a devastating secret. Terry claimed to have knowledge of a murder. 35-year-old Jesslyn Rich was a security guard at Frontera Penitentiary. She worked hard as a prison guard at Frontera for two years and was hoping to be promoted to sergeant, and it seemed that she was a good fit for the position. Jesslyn was well-liked by her co-workers and the inmates. While working there, she maintained a straight-A average in her criminology classes at night school but perhaps she was too good at her job. It was reported by some of her former colleagues that Jesslyn was becoming vocally suspicious of alleged drug activity going on in the prison. The drug activity, should it be true, implicated both the inmates and the prison guards. Jesslyn would disappear shortly after making those concerns known amongst the guards. On November 11, 1984, Jesslyn was at Charlie's Wild West Saloon, a country western bar in Orange, California. She was out with some friends that night, a woman named Marilyn 
and two male friends. According to Marilyn, things were fun and jovial for most of the night. Then things took a strange turn. At one point during the evening, Jesslyn suddenly sat still and looked past her to the front door. Marilyn looked at Jesslyn and noticed that her eyes looked wide and fearful. For some reason, Marilyn did not turn around and look at who was at the door. After a few moments, Jesslyn appeared to have snapped out of her panic. She came back into the conversation as normal. A few minutes later, at around 8.30 p.m., Jesslyn left the table, saying that she had to go to the bathroom. Marilyn watched as Jesslyn turned the corner to go down the hallway towards the bathroom. She also noticed a man following Jesslyn in the same direction. Jesslyn Rich was never seen again. She simply vanished without a trace, leaving her newly purchased sports car in the parking lot of the saloon. Her family and friends launched an extensive search to locate her. To them, it seemed completely out of character for her to abandon her children and ruin her career aspirations. It was the investigators who said that they had no evidence to support the family's belief that she had been met with foul play. According to Jesslyn's brother, Gary Munns, investigators made light of the situation. He and his parents were allegedly referred to as distraught relatives by the investigators. Their theory was also insensitive to the family, as they suggested that Jesslyn may have just run off on a fling with someone. Gary thought that it was absurd that they would suggest that. Gary observed that prior to her disappearance, Jesslyn made no bank withdrawals and did not bring along any additional clothing or valuables. Furthermore, after vanishing, she refrained from using her credit cards or bank book. Most notably, she did not reach out to her children or other family members, a stark contrast to her usual behavior. Gary believed that the police failed to conduct thorough questioning of witnesses and neglected to pursue leads related to the case. Gary combed through Jesslyn's house, meticulously searching for clues that the police might have missed. While sifting through her trash, he stumbled upon evidence suggesting that her awareness of illicit activities at the prison had jeopardized her life. Among the discarded items were several torn up pieces of paper bearing her handwriting. These fragments seemed to be notes or letters meant for a friend and co-worker. Gary gathered these torn pieces, took them home, and painstakingly pieced them together. The letter had been written to another guard at Frontera. Written on the margin of the last page was Jesslyn's haunting recital of an alleged threat she had received from another prison guard. She was told that anyone interfering with his drug activities would be taken care of. At the time, the letter was the only concrete evidence indicating that Jesslyn had met with foul play. The case then went cold for three years, fading into the darkness and leaving her family with nothing but an unsettling sense of emptiness. They would find solace in the least likely place when prison inmate Terry Lucas told prison guard Betty Thompson that she had been threatened by guards to keep quiet about what she knew. The morning after her unsettling conversation with Terry, Thompson returned to the prison infirmary. When she walked over to touch Terry, she noticed that she was dead. 
She went to the nurse's station and told them about Terry. She also told them about the coldness of the room, that Terry was not covered. Her eyes were open and her breakfast tray had not been touched. The nurses told Thompson that they would take care of it. Incredibly, Thompson claims that Terry's body remained in the cell for a full three days before the county coroner's office was called on November 24th. Former officer Barbara Leon seemed to confirm Thompson's story. She claimed that on the night before Terry was removed, she checked her cell three times and noticed that she was in the same position each time. She also never covered herself with a blanket, even though it was cold that night. Betty Thompson alleges that an official from the coroner's office gave a damning summary of their findings. Blades of grass were in Terry's hair. There were multiple bruises on her arms, neck, and face, and her right arm seemed to have been broken. The official believed that Terry Lucas was murdered, and the cause of death was suffocation with the pillow found underneath her broken arm. Then, the official met with members of the prison administration. The official would change several details about their belief after coming out of that meeting. Suddenly, there would be no classification of murder. There would also be no mention of Terry's body remaining in her cell for three days. Her cause of death was listed as complications due to diabetes. After that, Thompson came under fire. Thompson says that she was subjected to threats and intimidation by her superiors for not wanting to go along with this narrative. She had to endure their tactics for six hours. She was even told that she would suffer the same fate as Jesslyn if she didn't play along. This was a significant threat. Thompson realized at that point that she never told anyone what Terry confessed to her. For an administrator to bring up Jesslyn's name unprompted it would seem that Terry's confession had some merit. After succumbing to the pressure, Thompson broke down and cried. She caved and wrote what they told her to. However, at the bottom of the page, she noted that it was written and signed under duress. That statement was then ripped up and Thompson's signature was forged. Following a threatening phone call to her office, Thompson received the same veiled threat from another prison official. After seven months of similar calls, Thompson was shot at from a moving car in front of her home in June of 1988. As the police at her home were taking a report, she got a phone call saying, next time, we won't miss. But Betty Thompson was not deterred. She went public with everything she knew. The resulting scandal covered several front-page articles in the Orange County Register over insider accounts of drug dealing and corruption. Betty Thompson and five other guards testified in state Senate hearings over the alleged offenses. A spokesman for the California Department of Officials claimed that there was no evidence for the incidents described. However, that would not prevent the information from eventually coming out. It first started in October of 1987. That is when 33-year-old prison guard Harold Delon Anderson was fired for forcing inmates through threats and intimidation to perform sexual acts on him. Sadly, Anderson was never criminally charged with the acts, despite the overwhelming mountain of evidence to prove that he did commit them. 
There were several other guards that came forward and confessed that they witnessed these acts. In a familiar scenario, one of the prison guards who reported him would later receive harassing phone calls and intimidating anonymous notes. That same guard was also held in an office and harassed by other officers to keep quiet about what was witnessed. Another guard would also come out with damning information. Christine Lopez claimed that she'd witnessed what she believed was a potential drug deal between two inmates. When she questioned one of them, her lieutenant Carmen Juarez appeared and said that the inmate was with her. Lopez continued to dig into this instance and later discovered that drugs were being brought to inmates on a food cart. She alerted other prison guards and the group started searching the food carts more thoroughly. The searching of the carts effectively stopped the smuggling of the drugs through those means. Soon after those efforts, Lopez became the victim of harassment. She had holes punched in her radiator. The radiator hose was cut and she received several silent phone calls at her home. In February of 1990, she quit and later sought treatment for PTSD and suicidal thoughts. In December 1990, Carmen Juarez was arrested and charged with attempting to dissuade a witness and preparing false documents. She pleaded no contest to a lesser charge of destroying evidence and was sentenced to just two years probation. Neither she nor any other guards have been charged in Terry's case. And sadly, the cases of clear abuse at the prison did not stop back in the 1990s. In 2021, Two inmates from the California Institute for Women alleged in a federal lawsuit that prison officials used them as bait in a botched sting operation. This operation allowed a predatory prison guard to sexually assault them. This occurred back in 2017. The women are still incarcerated and are not identified in the complaint filed. They are suing former corrections officer Stephen Merrill, who allegedly assaulted them and Joseph Spinney, a captain at the California Institute for Women in Chino, who helped spearhead the sting operation. The women claimed that they were instructed by Spinney to flirt with Merrill and encourage his advances one night. A camera was to be set up in their cell with audio recording capabilities to catch him in the act of sexually assaulting them. The women were even given a code phrase to alert Spinney that they were uncomfortable and needed the sting to end. Lawyers for the women claimed that Spinney sat and waited until Merrill had finished sexually assaulting the women before they entered the cell to take him away. Merrill was eventually fired for his sexual conduct at the prison. In July of 2018, Merrill pleaded no contest to sexual activity by a public employee with a consenting confined adult he received a two-year suspended prison sentence and three years of probation. As it turns out, Jesslyn's murder was not connected to Terry's. In July of 1992, the Orange County Sheriff identified Jesslyn's killer as 45-year-old David Daniel Reebies. He was an ex-convict who worked at the Country Western Bar, where Jesslyn was last seen alive. He had been a suspect in the case for years. According to Jesslyn's friend Marilyn, he had been hanging with them and flirting with Jesslyn throughout the night. 
An employee also saw someone resembling Jesslyn laying in the back seat of Rebus's car that night. Before leaving, Rebus told another witness that Jesslyn was ill and that he was going to take care of her. This was the last time she was seen alive. Rebus died of a heart attack in October of 1990. However, shortly before his death, he revealed to family members that he had killed Jesslyn. In his confession, he claimed that he took Jesslyn from the saloon to his home. He then took her to a remote area in San Bernardino, shot her, dismembered her, and dumped her body. After his deathbed confession, his relatives went to the police. Other acquaintances later told police that he had confessed to the murder to them as well. There were remains found in San Bernardino that were identified as Jesslyn's based on the physical description and Rebus's confession. Surprisingly, Jesslyn's daughter later wrote on a forum that the remains supposedly identified as her mother's were never positively identified. Leslie claims that she gave police DNA to test against the remains. It is not known what the results revealed. In 2009, the case was officially closed and a headstone was made for Jesslyn. However, the case has many unresolved questions, including whether or not the remains were hers and whether or not Ribus was her killer. Although investigators believe he was responsible and that the prison was not involved, her family and former co-workers believe otherwise. And what about the death of Terry Lucas? While some of the guards were brought up on charges related to their intimidation of the other guards, there have been no charges in Terry Lucas's death. In 1991, her family accepted $290,000 from the state to settle a wrongful death lawsuit. With that settlement may have come the end of any answers we might get with regard to what actually happened to Terry Lucas. <laughs>